Early August 2020, just a couple of weeks into mask mandates, a friend of Jim Babgas suspected that libertarians had a better response to the pandemic. What would libertarians do, he asked. Jim responded with 10 questions of his own. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka, brought to you by the Zero Aggression Project, zeroaggressionproject.org. I'm your host, Bill Perotsman. It's now August 2022. Jim revisited his answer and posted it online. We'll include that link in the show notes so you can read it as well. Jim, did you take advantage of hindsight? Were you able to make yourself seem a bit more prophetic? No, not at all. Uh, the article, which I will encourage people to go read, and we're going to go through a little bit here today. Uh, we updated the the, the the editing of it. We tried to make it clearer, make the reading better, more public, more broad. But I was very careful uh, to only be making the same points that I made at the time and all, all only to say what we knew at the time scientifically and so forth. So, but people can judge for themselves. They can go look and see. I mean, there's no, they would be able to tell if I made a 2021 claim, for example. Right. Uh, I appreciate this intellectual rigor because, you know, it's always nice to look back and say, I told you so, but that's not what we're doing here, people. <laughs> so, so you asked 10 questions in this piece. The first half, the first two, which we'll cover together, have to do with what the economists call the knowledge problem. Yeah. And there's two points that I started off this article making. They're, they're incredibly important. They're the most important points we're going to make during this time here. And, that, and, and you would hope, actually, after you've made these two points, you would be done. You aren't. There's other things you're going to have to say to people. But these are the two, to me, most salient points. Number one, who has the greater sum of knowledge? One person or millions of persons? And this question is inspired by the fact that when we first had the pandemic. This is the very end of March, beginning of April. I was called by an Associated Press reporter. And I'm going to say something I haven't said in a public forum up to this point. At least I don't recall having said. I've said it to friends, but not publicly. And that is that uh, there were eight libertarians or six libertarians, I no longer remember the exact number, who were interviewed on the libertarian perspective on the pandemic when this whole thing was brand new. Two of us held the line. Uh, the rest of us said, no, there's definitely a government role. Now, they argued over what it was, and they wanted it to be very humble. They wanted it to be very careful. They wanted it to be limited. But they did not uh, deny that the government had a significant role to play. And I'm close friends with one of the other people that was quoted in that piece. Uh, work with him, as a matter of fact. He didn't hold the line either. <laughs> and I was pleased that I, that I did that. And I look back at that moment and say I was still right to this day. Um, this was the question I asked the reporter. He's like, you know, does the governor have to coordinate everybody? Like there's a nuclear bomb coming and does he have to tell her? No, because if you got the news out, people would begin immediately undertaking actions and figuring out how to do things on their own. The second point, uh, which approach will be more robust? Which one will have more potential possibilities to it? And that is one person coordinating the actions of millions of people or millions of humans taking single actions and and seeing where those go. Uh, this, this is so fundamental that people will try a variety of things and then we will be able to begin learning uh, some best practices as a result of their of their efforts. Um, the, the idea that, you know, I, the, the, the example that I raised, the Associated Press reporter at the time of that article, 
was let's say there's a woman who's trapped in a home with an alcoholic abusive husband and children as well and going to school is what gets them out of that house and the woman uh, being able to go to work or do other things gets her away from that situation regardless of what other commentary you want to offer on that potential hypothetical locking everyone together uh, at home under those circumstances might have been less than ideal it might have been that the case that the risk ward ratio, even if the pandemic was as dangerous as they were telling us at the end of March, and it wasn't, even if it was, she probably might have still made the decision to want to go and be around other people. And that decision should have been hers to make, not some governor in some distant state capital who's never met her in his life. I'm a little bit concerned by the response, but I do agree that more of us working on the problem collectively, perhaps, will surface more solutions. But we don't have a situation here where the government trusts us anymore. Does that make sense? I uh, yeah, completely. And I, I, you know, have I had this conversation on another issue just this morning on the Gary Nolan show. So in that particular instance, an Amish farmer for selling natural medicinal products and uh, milk straight from the animal uh, was shut down. His farm was shut down by the federal government and $300,000 of fines have been levied against him, which will make it virtually impossible. It's going to bankrupt him and make it virtually impossible for him to defend himself. Uh, Tucker Carlson, I believe, covered this story this week. It made national news. But I was asked about this this morning. Well, we can start running through a variety of scenarios. Did the farmer, and this this Amish farmer, did he, uh, did he take people's milk away from them and force them to drink his his milk straight from the cow? Right. Right. Well, no. No. Of course. Did he, he did. did he sneak into the grocery store when no one was looking, take them off the shelves, take the milk off the shelves, and put his milk there in its place? without anybody being the wiser so that people were conned and bought the wrong milk. No, of course not. no, no, this is just, you know, you see where I'm going. This gets, did he hold a gun to people and say, you have to drink my milk? N none of those things happened. So the actual answer for why the government believes it's going to be involved as Gary Nolan is fond of pointing out is you're too stupid. He says it just like that says this frequently because the common thread in this is that they assume we're too dumb to know what's good for us and they have to stick their nose in and, and protect us from, from ourselves. Well, this leads right into the third question, which is like if an individual makes a mistake, it might affect a few people. It might even affect hundreds of people or maybe even thousands. But if the government blows it, we're all screwed. That was my third point. And I, I it, it's to me, this is another one of these things that ought to be axiomatic. Axiomatic meaning it's a self-evident truth. You don't have to actually explain it. This is a podcast. We're going to do it anyway. But uh, you, it, what happens is, is if, if, if someone over here and someone over there and you and me and someone else listening all come up with a different solution to a situation, best practices emerge from that. And... The fact of the matter is people, because they're looking out for their self-interest, will try to drive themselves to the, to the place of security anyway. It's human nature to try to find that spot and to operate that way. The president, on the other hand, or the governor, cannot actually know what that's going to be for everyone 
cannot coordinate all the actions to make that happen fast enough, cannot do it even if he imposes by force. There's an irony, for example, that if we're going to have a lockdown, and we did, that you are going to have to send some people to work whose job it is to enforce the law. So there were literally people on the streets in Australia where they did actually lock people in their homes out enforcing the laws. And so once you say, well, and then you got to feed people. So certain people got to get out there and then people got to deliver things and certain people got to get out there. And pretty soon everybody's got permission slips for who can and who can get out. And that becomes a game of, you know, do you have to have papers that, that validate you have permission to be out here? Is that a system that opens itself up to some kind of corruption? So there's just no way that the person who is, you know, there's one person who has sufficient knowledge to know every situation, what is the maximum safety in any given situation? It is literally impossible. You've made the point that we learn faster by, we learn faster locally, let me say it that way. So uh, where I was living, there were families that started to get together and they do things like education pods and they do things like shopping pods. So there were, there were best practice results rising up locally. And I agree with you about this, that that localized experimenting practice results in better results because you're getting more experience. You're not just waiting for a bunch of scientists somewhere to tell you what to do. And we're seeing it play out right now. This is probably a, a lousy corollary, but we're seeing that play out right now in the state's response to the, the SCOTUS decision on abortion, for example, where the states are taking their own stance and, and individually saying, oh, no, no, we do it this way here and they do it that way there. But this leads right into <laughs> this leads right into your fourth question, which is how often do humans actually fail to act to do anything in response to danger? So I, I just want to remind people that we kind of started off this entire situation in March of 2020. It turned out that there were two studies. One of them was from Imperial, the most notable one was from Imperial College, suggesting that 2 million Americans were going to die in the next several months. On the presumption, this was a model. The model laid out several layers of things that could happen with different levels of intervention and different levels of human activity. But the one that the media glommed onto, the one that the political figures glommed onto was the most dramatic, which literally assumed people would do nothing. Yeah, right. This is the stupidest thing I may we may have heard ever. Bomb goes off. What happens to the people in the crowd? What do they do? They scatter, right? They I mean, they, inevitably. The way. they find shelter. They right. do stuff, right? They don't just sit there. Shots start coming and you don't know what direction from come. Do you stand up straight and go, you know, this is rather interesting right now. What's happening? Or do you crouch down, hide behind something? Fire starts. Maybe it started in the kitchen and you're watching TV. You say, well, this show only has eight minutes left to go, according to Netflix. I think I'm going to finish it. I mean, who the hell is this stupid? And, and, and this was literally the assumption that we worked off of. And, and it doesn't stop there because these really imbecilic politicians, and I throw this out across the board, didn't take note of the fact that voluntary actions were already happening with some really major players like the NBA, Disneyland, the NCAA. There were a host of, of players that were going uh, in you know, that had crowd gatherings and said, you know what, at great expense to our own profit, we're canceling. We're turning off events right now. This is what they did initially. 
we had to figure out how to get back to work uh, eventually, but they, and they would have, and they would have come up with their own approaches and done it. We watched the NFL do it that fall. Uh, they actually closed their entire stadiums down. They gave up all their ticket revenue. Why? Why did they do that? Because it's bad business to get your customers sick and dying. Yeah, it's the right thing to do. So I just, I'm going on a trip here next week. And I was just told by somebody that a restaurant that I had heard of is like, hey, we could maybe go to that restaurant. And I'm like, well, you haven't been there in a while, have you? And I'm like, no. And they said, well, they've been shut down three times in the last three years for health problems. Oh, guess where we're not going? Not going there. So this business's reputation has been permanently sullied and damaged. People are not that stupid. And the uh, politicians, again, were assuming we were. Not only that, but there's another thing that with Lair we can look at this, which was that companies that did have to serve their customers, and Walmart's the example I used in the piece, began implementing policies to make their store, the store experience safer. They set up, for example, a special time of day for high-risk people to go. And that policy, frankly, should have been pursued to its very end. It was instinctively right, and it turned out it was scientifically sound. It was one of the most scientifically sound things that was pronounced throughout this entire time, and it was abandoned and destroyed because we simply said, well, you know, we're going to close businesses, and then we're going to make allow people to go in so long as they have masks on their faces, which we now know did nothing. But there was a time of day that you could have gone if you were a high-risk person, and you would only be in the presence of a small number of other high-risk persons. And you could have taken a, whatever additional precautions you wanted at that juncture. You could have put on full you know, sand, you know, know, gear, whatever you wanted to do. But it was clear that other people, the regular hoi polloi, wouldn't, were not supposed to be there during that time. Senior citizens, people with certain respiratory conditions could go during that time. And, and companies have a huge incentive to try to satisfy as many people as they possibly can. And it was already happening. And the point for bo in both of these arguments I'm making is the politicians were absolutely blind and acting as if none of us would do what was in our own good. When the fact is metaphysically certain, we always do act. This is so amazing to me because the utter ignorance of our government to allow us to do the right thing, whatever that means. But let's take it even a step further to the libertarian principle of do no harm. Here were whole organizations from the NFL to Walmart to like mom and pop grocery stores near, near us here in San Diego were doing the right thing. And they were doing it based upon what's the least harm that we can offer our customers who need us right now. And I know, ring the bell, libertarian, libertarian, I know. But do no harm is a basic human principle, people. It's the principle of, of self-respect. Uh, there's so much involved in that. Okay, so I'll get off my soapbox and let you continue here because I know there's something really important you want to say. No, so it's, it, this is huge because when we set humans for, loose to do what they're capable of doing, they solve problems. So I want you to re remember that at the beginning, at the outset of this, there was a mask issue. There were not enough in supply. Surprise, surprise, our government had modeled this emergency. They knew that there was a certain event like this that was going to happen. And they didn't have enough supplies on hand. And we found this out like instantly. Like they were in full panic mode because they didn't have it. So they made the egregious decision to lie because they had to make a central planned statement. And they were afraid that people were going to get masks for themselves when they were in short supply. 
Can I just throw in here, too, because I think this is important for us to recognize that a Republican administration was in charge of this response, not the not the socialist Democrats that everybody likes to poke fun of. But, you know, our commander in chief was pretty much just about as red as it came. And, And and here's the thing with this. It's it's people went out and began making masks themselves. People began making masks and they made good ones. They made ones that were far better quality than what people ended up wearing or that would are normally used for, for minor hospital use, the throwaway ones. They made better quality masks. And I have, I got three of these from a friend, my friend Delilah uh, made three of these for me. And this is an example of letting a thousand solutions bloom. And this is what they refuse to do. Everything about a government policy is one size fit all, not let 1,000 solutions bloom. You asked the question, Jim, two years ago about the political effects of the pandemic. And I think it's very insightful. And, and I, I want listeners to think about this carefully, too, before just knee jerking to a yes or no. But have the various political effects that happened throughout the pandemic increased or decreased social harmony and cooperation? We did an episode about this just a couple episodes ago. We talked about uh, law versus policy. You can go back and look up that episode. It's just a, it's we just did it here just a couple of weeks ago. It is in in that in that case we talked heavily about the fact that. There is this phenomena called reactance. There are reactionaries. By virtue of you saying you will do this, you automatically engender people who go, well, no, I won't. And this, so, and and this is true, by the way, uh, as as famously it's been put, I cannot remember the person who suggested this by small children and great nations. Both do this. (laughs) Uh, And and teenagers, by the way, if you've ever been a parent. Yes, yes. And uh, then if you say, well, wait a minute, you weren't listening to us. We're going to add arguments. We're going to bring the governor on to lecture you for an hour. Uh, These kinds of activity, or we're going to censor activity on social media. These kind of things cause a backfire effect. People start to go, wait a minute, maybe we're onto something here. Why are they overreacting to this? And so the better the strength of your argument and the more you do to suppress opposition to that argument, the stronger the resistance gets. And so social harmony frayed. It was already fraying badly. Ever since Donald Trump came down the escalator, it was already on a course. In fact, I would go back and say ever since the Iraq war, uh, maybe the 2006 election timeframe, and then the bailout, which happened in the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, I I would say that basically it, it had been kind of cast in stone. But this was like adding supercharge to it. We were going to now we were really going to go at our neighbor's throat. We weren't just going to be divided politically. We were going to start bringing politics home and fighting with each other. And it didn't work. It didn't work. It, 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 it just frayed everything. Every time something comes down like that as a, you know, do this now, it creates further dissension. And, they, and what? The politicians don't see this? Yeah, you don't have to tell people, for example, to drive on the right side of the road. You don't have to tell people to, uh, you know, to be nice to their neighbors or not throw a punch or there's a whole host of activities you don't have to do because we understand certain risks that come with these activities. Let me use the one of throwing at a punch. I, in general, I don't walk around throwing punches at people. 
right? Because it doesn't work very well. <laughs> no, I mean, sooner or later, you know, somebody hits me back. I don't know why, right? I mean, yeah. of course I know why. And this is, this is my point. Like people get this and they'll figure things out for themselves. So let's just assume, let's turn on Darwin's machine. Let's assume that if not listening to the public health authorities, and I don't believe in the concept of public health either, by the way, but let's assume that, you know, listening to these people, you would have, if you failed to listen to them, bad things would have happened to you. Well, if the bad things start happening to the people who are not following the rules, the bad the people start, more people start following the rules. Trust me. Like it doesn't take long for them to figure that out. It's unfortunate that somebody has to be kind of the experiment on the front end of that. But really, I mean, how how hard should we be working to save the life of somebody who really wants to hurt themselves? Oh, okay. Good right? luck to you. Darwin Awards all over again. Yeah. I've got a tangential question. You may choose not to answer it, but I'll try anyway. Um, yes, I choose to un not answer lots of questions on this show. Okay. It's my and, way. And, and I'm good with that, as you know. <laughs> so social science, economics, um, all of those sort of um, human sciences are at a different level of understanding and, and than biology and mathematics and physics. And they're not as exact as those other sort of core sciences are. Um, and right now, forgive me, everybody, because I've just finished a book called Consilience by E.O. Wilson, written at the turn of the last century, about how all this stuff needs to start to play together better than it has. And so we can make the social sciences predictive. I mean, social science is good. We know about reactants. We know about some things. But my question here is, you know, there is research and we're sort of comparing social science research to medical research. And we know that medical research is going to give us answers that are more predictable than the social sciences will. Yes. So how did things go so wrong on a policy level, given that? Worldwide, too, not just here. Well, there's two, there's two answers to that. So there is the there is the problem with social science in the first place. So over the Zero Aggression Project, we have a number of mental levers where we deal with the limits of social science and various social science arguments. Uh, it is impossible to prove through a study and replication is very, very difficult that a pol that one policy is going to work over, over the other. And one reason that this is so difficult is we don't get the chance to run both experiments at the same time. So if a governor makes a decision or a president makes a decision, we have to live with the effects of that decision being made. Now, to the degree that the federal government stayed out of the way, and it, it did at some points in, in this crisis, but to the degree that it stays out of the way, and there are 50 laboratories of democracy, a best practice can emerge amongst various states, and even in looking at what's going on around the planet. But it's still a very inexact. It's not predictable because humans are predictable. Uh, we don't know what individuals are going to do, and we don't know what they're going to do from moment to moment based on new information that's coming in. This is why too much of what happened in this particular crisis was built on what are called models. And models are basically, and I'm sorry for this, people who are in statistics and in the virology and all these other fields, epidemiology, going to be very mad at me right now, but they're crystal balls. Uh, they have a lot of math, complicated math involved in them, but they're crystal balls. You have to make a prediction and another prediction and another prediction and another prediction. And you have to figure out how those things are likely to interact with one another. And you can't guarantee to be right about any of that. And anybody that's ever tried to, for example, handicap sports knows this, right? We, we know certain teams are going to play on Sunday. 
and we know whose quarterback is out and whatnot. And it's still very hard to, to, to win and make a living gambling. I'm not saying it's impossible, but most people are not very good at it. And so even if they have a lot of expertise, really, really hard to make a living doing that. The epidemiologists made a huge mistake. I've talked about this before. Henry Hazlitt wrote a book called Economics in One Lesson. And the one lesson essentially was you had to be aware of all the effects. You had to take everyone into account in a policy. Well, in the epidemiologists didn't have the economists in the room. And we made all the decisions based on as if COVID had full control of the planet and nothing else mattered. Now, why did this happen is a different question. Well, there was a lot of money to be made, uh, especially on the distribution of vaccines and medical technologies. Uh, at, at a very early stage, we were told there was a shortage of ventilators. Um, it, there, that may not have been true. And I, I don't know for sure in New York City, in Brooklyn, there might have been a moment where that wasn't true. But that was never true in most cities across the United States. It was never true in my state at any one juncture, even though my governor and chief health officer of my state repeatedly stood up and said they were panicked that we didn't have enough ventilators. But the news got out and there was a contract to make lots of new ventilators and to make mobile ventilators. And production on various other products was stopped so we could make these products. And so people made money, right? It was a sure, sure game. And nowhere was this more true than the guaranteed purchase and no liability provision on the vaccines. And that drove a lot of this. There's money to be made. You always have to look and see who, who's making the money. So when a, medic, when a scientific decision, medical in this case, becomes political, it sort of gets dumbed down and it kind of leaves the science behind. And of course, the politicians then wind up being the ones who take credit and blame for it <laughs> worldwide. But we've not done the politicians a, a, a real service by allowing that to take place. Like we could have, we could have advised economists could have been in the room with the epidemiologists advising the politicians who were leading us and they had might have made a different choice. Mm -hmm. But still, we have to face this problem of once the decision reaches the political level, all the science goes out the window. Yeah. Um, and this is because it'll be a political decision and political decisions have to do with who has more power, who has more pull, who is what, what are the headlines at the moment? Those are the things that matter. And the headlines, you know, are is, is if it bleeds, it leads. So fear rules the day. So, you know, yeah, we had. Again, yeah. yeah. So we had, you know, we had uh, Andrew Como. Uh, and he wasn't the only one this happened, maybe likely happened in Pennsylvania and Michigan as well. But he was taking overflow patients out of the hospitals and sending them to nursing homes. And at the time that I wrote that piece two years ago, we already knew. And he was denying this, but we already knew that 4,500 New Yorkers had died as a result of this policy. We already knew that. And the number and ended up being larger than that. And we allowed this, like as voters, as citizens, we allowed our leader to do this. We not only permitted it, the, the media was actively working, CNN in particular, to try to elevate uh, Andrew Cuomo to presidential candidate status. Oh, exactly. Sure. But this, this begs the question, which you asked very astutely two years ago, do politicians respond more to fear or facts? People who uh, read the article are going to be told that there is one question that got enhanced a little bit in this, and it was because I wasn't sufficiently clear at the time. It wasn't written. It was, it was more written to a friend than it was written to a broader audience. I added a factoid in here. 
It was something I already knew two years ago. It was what I was thinking, honestly, two years ago. So there, there's the caveat. There's the one time that I made a significant change in the piece. And that was the story of Willie Horton, which to me is an instructive tale. Michael Dukakis is running for president. He was governor of Massachusetts. He had in Massachusetts, there was a furlough program for prisoners that he had supported. It allowed men who were getting ready to go back and, and get back in society. It allowed individuals who uh, could potentially be paroled or or their sentences were coming near to an end to be able to go out and 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 work and then come back to the prison to, to, to sleep at night. They could have an outside job and it was giving them a head start, hopefully to reduce recidivism. And the program was a tremendous success until a man named Willie Horton went on a murder spree in Massachusetts, Maryland. He ends up, you know, raping and murdering. And that was used uh, as a weapon, a cudgel by the uh, by supporters, not the actual campaign of the actual, but supporters of George H.W. Bush in 1988. And he used it as part of a campaign to demonstrate that Michael Dukakis was weak and ineffective and unwilling to do what it requ was required uh, to fight crime. And so even if this program was working for hundreds of men and by extension, all of their families, so now we're talking thousands of people, one person ends it. And this is the same logic that underlies gun control. This is the same logic that underlies a whole uh, array of acts that if one person is gonna behave badly, no one's allowed to have it. And where politicians know that are do this because they can't afford the risk. They can't afford the chance that one time something's going to go wrong. And that's their calculus in these situations. So they will overreact and they will they will keep the provisions in place long after their effective need uh, has vanished because they're still scared. And the media, by the way, continues to prey on this with the it, if it bleeds, it leads mentality. So why in the world do we continue to allow politicians and bureaucrats to be involved, assuming that things will be better if they are. I mean, it's okay. Soapbox time again. So everybody, you know, get out your hankies, but, <laughs> and maybe it's rhetorical, but for heaven's sakes, we keep electing these fear mongers instead of responsible leaders. Maybe responsible leaders don't want to be involved. I don't know, but that's the underlying issue that ought to really scare us. And we have a, battlefield in government now instead of like cooperative progress on the real issues. It seems our government is only interested in things that allow them to get reelected, not in things that are to the benefit of all Americans or, dare I say it, of the interest to the globe, to the earth. So the state is always a trough, it's a feeding trough for special interests. And they brew up profits at our collective expense. And in the past, I've called this state exploitation. I wrote about uh, in this piece something called the collective action problem. And frankly, it's the best writing I've done on this. It's the shortest, most direct, clearest explanation I've given of this. But there are always two sides, essentially. There is the people who are the concentrated interests. They, they stand to benefit immensely from the profits uh, of, what, of having their product or service bought by the government. And so they lobby to get what they want. The taxpayer has very little chance of winning and stopping this and recognizes that there are far too many fights to be had, can't keep up with all of them. And even if they did win, the, the win would be almost futile. 
like if you're going to save a quarter or you're going to save a dollar or you're going to save 10 bucks, why bother? And so they are not going to invest the time and the effort and the trouble to do it. And so concentrated benefits uh, defeats the diffuse cost side, the diffuse taxpayer side every time. But if people want to see this explained and outlined in, in very succinct, really well-organized prose, I nailed it in this piece. This is I've been talking about this for years, and I really like how I explained it here uh, in the article that we're linking uh, that's attached to this. That is the number one reason why this doesn't happen. It is. It turns out that apathy in that circumstance becomes rational, and we that's why they call it rational apathy. Why would you not spend your time on something that is more interesting to you and that where you think you're going to have a bigger effect than in all this plethora of fighting uh, fights that you could have uh, because concentrated on if it, uh, interests are showing up? I really do believe at the end of the day, we have to reach a point where we say we don't have to, we don't want the state in all of these areas and we want human action to prevail. And these, if a decision needs to be made that is communal in nature, it should be made amongst people who know each other. It should not spread uh, outside of a boundary where I can touch. I should not have any influence or sway over you in California, Bill, from here in Ohio and vice versa, because we're not connected to each other. We are remote and distant and, and we know different people and move in different circles. You're not going to breathe the same air I breathe. It's unreasonable to, for me to do, to, to do that. It's unreasonable for me to do it across town. It should be limited to people that are in my area. And, and it turns out when that happens, there's no, there's no contracts anymore, right? If, yes. if, if, if 30 or 40 people are working together on something, who gets the full-time gig out of that job? Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, it becomes a service that you do. And we've mistaken this representative service. We've used this language. We've stolen it and, and used it for this gargantuan government we've got. These people are not servants. They profit immensely off of what they're doing because they govern so many of us and they don't know any of us. So that's my ultimate solution to this. There's no way we can keep up with all these things. There's no way we're going to win against the concentrated benefits uh uh, that are lobbying, we need to be able to govern ourselves here at home in face-to-face -face conversation. You told me a story, if you don't mind sharing, and I only got a couple more minutes on this, but a friend of yours who's, a, who's running a pharmaceutical startup um, had a really interesting story to share. And I think that might be helpful for the listeners just to get an idea of like, it isn't hopeless people. Um, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist, as we like to say, to be able to grasp this and make a difference. We were talking a couple of weeks ago, and you mentioned a story that a friend of yours who is a, who's an entrepreneur and a, running a pharmaceutical startup had shared with you back in August of 2020. And for me, it brought home the point that, yes, there is hope. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to deal with this. We have a couple more minutes. Can you share that story with the listeners? Yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I don't get to see this gentleman very often. And I happen to be in the same same vicinity as him. And he came over to visit me and we had lunch. Uh, he and his wife and me and my wife, we had a great time. Uh, but we spent an awful lot of time because he was reading everything at the time. He was, And he was telling me that, you know, back in the summer of 2020, uh, this the the life cycle of news on this was was going through so many generations so quickly that every five or six weeks, what you knew would become outdated. And his analysis was fair and it was subtle and nuanced. It took into a lot of different factors. It weighed different things out. It was far less declarative and a lot less fearful. Now, he took all of this extremely seriously right to the very end. 
fully vaccinated, wore his mask the whole time, wore his mask long after people didn't. So this was not somebody that was operating from the exact same vantage point that I was. But I could tell in his talk, in gathering the information, being serious about it, that he was not as scared. Even though he was taking various precautions, he was not hysterical, which all of the coverage was one thing, one message, be scared the entire time, and especially at that juncture. And there was room for freedom in his discussion, and there was room for entertaining questions, and there was room for persuasion. So it turned out to be a much more graceful conversation. I was, I, I was struck by it because clearly his values, his chosen values in the situation were different than mine. And he was not nasty or pejorative. He was very nuanced because he was doing his own homework. And I couldn't help noticing the distinction between his take and everything else that the media was serving up at the time. This is a little off the script too, but I'm curious about your vision in America right now. I've heard it said by people who are investigating what's going on below the media storm that most Americans are in that mindset, the same mindset that your friend has. Do you have a feeling on that? Do you have a crystal ball that works? Yeah, I think people are. Um, I think, that, you know, now that this is over and this happens, there's, there's I think, f- fundamentally two types of people. There are people who want this just to go away, and I think they're the majority. They don't want to have this discussion anymore. And so we're, you know, having a podcast that is highly undesirable in our society. Let's not, let's not talk about this. Let's move on. But there's another group of people who do want to learn the lessons of this. And this is the reason I return to this. I have long been motivated by the idea that when things happen, the news is incomplete. You don't know what's going on and you don't have all the facts, but you are still compelled to act. What do you do? In religion, they have what's called faith. They have a tradition that says, well, there are certain things that I do, regardless of what the circumstances are. I have a hope that exceeds what's happening to me in the present moment. We're called upon in the same way, and politicians are routinely called upon to react to a series of stimuli and events that they don't have all the facts. I have been a keen observer, for example, of uh, mass shootings and, and school shootings in particular. And there's certain things to know about those things. And after you learn kind of how those events play out, one of the things you find out after you've watched a few of these things is that at the start, what you hear from the media is going to be filled with error. It's going to be filled with rumor. It's going to be filled with them just trying to do whatever they can. You know, when the cameras are running 24 hours live and they have to fill the time, you're going to keep getting information that is not precise, not accurate, and sometimes absolutely false or made up. We only know this after long periods of time go by. We have a process in this country called due process and courts where things are settled in front of juries that take a long time to figure out what the actual truth of the matter is. And even they have a hard time arriving at the truth. So the idea that anyone's got a monopoly on it, even the people that are standing nearby the scene shortly after it happened is just phony. So how do you know, though, what the ju- decision the jury is going to arrive at? Or how do you know what you should or shouldn't do in this situation? There is some history that you got to do. You have to learn from history. And I call this heuristic thinking. You develop shortcuts to knowledge based on previous experience and, and, and insights and wisdom. 
And this is the sum of wisdom to me is to have these rules of thumb that you know how to follow at the very beginning so that you minimize the chance that you're going to make things worse. And I feel that my libertarianism is, is largely that kind of libertarianism. It's about not making things worse. It's about not compounding a problem by adding new problems because we stuck our nose where it didn't belong or we reacted to the wrong thing or we overreacted and we caused all kinds of attendant side effects. But we're going to come across this situation again. I mean, we're going to definitely go through another mass epidemic situation of some kind. And I'm not just even talking about pandemics. I'm talking about some other, there could be some other thing. Aliens, could, we could, they could tell us tomorrow that there was an alien attack. Don't laugh. I'm not putting it past them right now, okay? This thing worked really, really well, but a lot of people are kind of alert, awake for temporarily, and they might ask questions, right? They might need to wait a few years before they can pull this one back out again. I don't know. But we could end up in a situation like that. And when that happens, whatever it is, they're gonna, the, the, there's going to be a, a party line, and it's going to be part of the pundit class. It's going to be the politicians. It's going to be the petty bureaucrats all telling you, just listen to me. Just listen to me. And we can't have that. We got to have like some kind of uh, immune system to that. The, the social media companies are aiding and abetting these people too, because you can't even publish factual stuff anymore on social media without getting it taken down. And forget about jokes. Forget about puns. Yeah, even jokes. I mean, they're, they're, the jokes, literally jokes are getting uh, screened for being, um, what, what, what was the term? Incomplete. Uh, oh, out of context or something. Out of con context. Yeah. I mean, they're they're putting those kind of labels on things like, so you're supposed to explain the joke. I mean, everybody that's ever told a joke knows that explaining the joke is literally the, yes. the definition of failure Death. In, in comedy, right? Yeah. And and so they're, yeah. I mean, even even the ability for us to kid with each other is being is is being censored as misinformation. And when it comes to the government, I mean, so this is not new. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember Mark Twain. I wasn't quite born then, but we've been, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Humorous pundits have been questioning the state for quite a while. And in most cases, it's, you know, like George Carlin kind of gets it right a lot of the time. That intellect is able to assemble a joke around something that is an obvious gaping hole in the government. And we mm -hmm. laugh. But yes. questioning authority is even on the block right now. And it's going to get worse. And uh, up in Canada, I think we got a, a foreshadowing of things to come. Um, we're behind. We're not quite able to pull it off here. Uh, thank God. Uh, there is enough resistance. And I think that's the key idea. So, the, the, you know, in World War I, there actually was, um, it was illegal to criticize the government during the war. And they did put people in prison. So that happened here just over 100 years ago in our country. We're not talking about during slavery. We're not talking about, you know, some time when the England was running it. We're talking about a Democrat administration in 1918-19 timeframe. 1917-18, excuse me, timeframe. And so it could be that they could go that far and they could marginalize. They, there was really an active attempt, I really believe, to marginalize and silence a, a group of people. And, and, you know, whether you thought they deserved that or not, or you disagreed with them or not, to go to that extra step means that you're, you're taking away protections that protect all of us, including you. And you so think the, you think the January 6th, um, I'm not sure what to call them anymore. 
people who went to the Capitol <laughs> would agree with that statement? It was sort of organized. Let me, you know? let me just say, I hope so. Um, I don't support what they did, obviously. Right. Um, I thought it was ill-conceived, and I thought, frankly, it was stupid. Um, and I mean that. I mean that as a technical term. I don't mean that, like, you know, there's it, when you're in my line of work, you know that potentially somebody's going to show up at an event and look to stir up trouble. You know that this is going to happen. And I've actually experienced it. I, in fact, I actually believe to this day I encountered a government, uh, a government agent trying to get people and trap people in an event that I was at, trying to get them to want to go out and engage in armed revolution. We had no interest in that. We were there literally to talk about how to do this peacefully, how to change things. And, and so I think people have to be on the guard for this. And if you're going to be a maniac and you're going to go do this, 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 this thing, then, then, you know, there are certain consequences that, you know, you're stupid, you get in trouble. Stupidity has a price. It's a little bit of Darwin's machine kicking into gear again. I mean, you know, everybody should be, should take a lesson from that. But your question has to do more again with like how, uh, how we resist, right? Yeah. How do, and we, and resist, just, how do we resist skillfully? Because it, it does take, you know, it takes a majority still in America, uh, theoretically, <laughs> to, to make some. No, it, it, actually, it actually doesn't. Because what I want to say is that all government operates off of consent. And if people refuse to comply or if they find uh, ways to, be, to create resistance and politicians begin to get scared for their jobs in, in an electoral sense, then things change. They, 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 they're going to respond to those. Every tyrant, every tyrant needs people to follow his orders. Every tyrant needs people to comply and they can pick off some and they can pick off some for a long time. It's really up to us whether or not we're going to mount organized resistance to something. And some of these regulations that we went through during this time didn't end because the politicians chose to. They ended because people stopped practicing. And in order to save face, politicians had to say, hey, we're lifting these orders. Well, yeah, great. No one's doing that anymore anyway, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Obviously, people can participate in the solution here. Share this video. Is there mm. anything else that, I mean, vote? Is there anything else that we can do to... I, that's a, my main thing is to get this word out. I, I want to see us continue to have a discussion about what happened. I don't want it to end. And if I, I'm, I, this is a message again to the Republican Party. You aren't worth the powder. It's necessary to blow you away. If you aren't going to do the right thing here, if you get the power that you think you're going to get come this fall, then next year we need to start having investigations. I don't want, I'm not looking for punishment. I'm literally not interested in punishing anybody at this point. I don't care. What I want is all the truth acknowledged and out on the table, finally. Because, you know, it, there was a point for a year of this thing where you weren't allowed to discuss, for example, the source of it. It was off the table. It was, in a manner of speaking, almost illegal to discuss. You definitely were derided and shouted out and you were foreclosed from any commercial activities in the normal business thoroughfares that we have here in 2021 and so forth, 2020, you were shut off from those things and that should never have happened. And it turned out it was a gross error 
And now the history, the, the, the side of the evidence is overwhelmingly on the side that this was not a Wuhan, Wuhan wet market event. There's, in fact, there's no animals. They can't trace. They don't know where it is. They can't do it. The number, I just was a story the other day about the, 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 the appallingly small number of animals that have gotten COVID. Yeah, it's yeah. a very, very tiny number. Um, it should have, it should have been much more in, in, endemic and all them too. And the ones that got it were house pets. It, it's, it's so it's <laughs> the idea that this started there and then kind of came our direction. There's that, that story is incredibly, incredibly weak. And, uh, this was a point of social conflict. And this was the previous to that, a point of social oppression. We, we couldn't hear this, the, the truth. We don't want that. Again, all of this has to do with what we will allow ourselves to be put through. And, and I'm saying, stop your consent and then share this video. Let's have this discussion ongoing so that we can gather the lessons from this event and transport them to the next one. And if you want to know how to have a skillful discussion, check the episode with Dwayne Lester who talks about how to sell freedom without a fight. Yep. The, the, the method there will work for this conversation as well. I, I, you've used a word very courageously, I think, and I, and I want to echo that right now. Um, the response that we experienced from our government during the period of COVID and the pandemic was tyrannical. And I'm saying that advisedly, but I, I think that's probably the best word to use in the light of the current debate over how much control the government should have over our personal lives, how much control social media should have over what we can and cannot say, even if they're private companies. Is, am I going over the edge on that, Jim, or is tyranny really the, the point of the conversation here? Tyranny is a significant point. It, 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 and it, it, again, it cannot be tolerated. It won't, it won't thrive unless it's tolerated. It won't thrive unless it's consented to. It won't thrive unless people follow orders to obey it. It has, it, it requires other people to execute. And most importantly, I think that uh, tyranny is anti-grace. It's not graceful. We've got to allow human beings to, to protect themselves and their families and have some ability to retain their values and dignity along the way. It just doesn't work any other way. Plus, it's an ethical guide. Hard choices, right? But I think, if anything else, what your 10 prophetic questions have pointed out is that morality does work. Ethics do work. I love the fact, as an entrepreneur, I've got to say this, but I love the fact that, you know, a thousand potential solutions are available to us and best practices can emerge if we just unleash the human response that's part of all of us. And yeah, yes. I mean, we're going to have some Darwin Awards, okay, but there's also going to be some brilliant things that do emerge. You mentioned masks and so grace works. And that's a grace point, everybody if there ever was one. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening to Jim and me today. And uh, allowing us to wander through these conversations is part of beginning the, for the bigger conversation with all of you and that you can have with all of your friends and family and beyond to hopefully um, infuse our conversations regarding politics, regarding economics, regarding religion with a bit more grace. We know Grace Arkey works. We're glad you're listening. If you haven't yet, subscribe, ring the bell, 
and we'll see you again on the next episode. Aho.